Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the Onstage Colorado podcast. I'm your host, Alex Miller. And in a minute, I'll share my interview with Wendy Ishii at Bablu Theater in Fort Collins. Well, now most of the holiday shows have wrapped up and January shows are just starting. The Onstage Colorado review crew has at least 10 shows on our docket for reviews this month, so be sure to check them out as they come online at onstagecolorado.com. In this, our first episode of 2020, I traveled up to Fort Collins to Bablu Theater, where I met with founding artistic director Wendy Ishii. You know, I'd first met Wendy back in the 90s during some Colorado Community Theater Coalition festivals, and Bob Blue was sort of the talk of the town as uh, this up-and-coming theater company winning awards and doing, of all things, a lot of Samuel Beckett plays. Since then, the theater has gained an international reputation for their productions of Beckett's work and quite a bit more. Now in its 28th season, Bob Blue is at the heart of a rejuvenated section of Old Town Fort Collins, and I had a great conversation with Wendy about how it all got started and where it's going. So here's my interview with Wendy Ishii. All right, we're here today with Wendy Ishi, the founding artistic director at Bablu Theater Company here in beautiful downtown Fort Collins. I uh, just drove up here. It's the first podcast of 2020. So thanks for being with us today, Wendy. My pleasure. All right. So I wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, your your season that's going on. But first, I wanted to ask just a little bit about, you know, kind of the theater itself. And, and also, I wanted to kind of start with a little bit about you and, and your background and, and, and where are you from and, and how'd, you, how'd you learn all this stuff about acting and directing and artistic directing and all that mm. stuff? <laughs> well, I was born back east. I was actually born in, in Scarsdale, New York, and left there when I was four or five, I think, to uh, Washington State, Mercer Island, before it was Tony, when it was kind of the outback. And then my family moved to California, uh, outside San Francisco in uh, San, uh, Hillsdale, I think. And then we moved to Vermont, so kind of back and forth. Uh, wow, that is a yeah. jumping around quite and a bit. My father was not in the military. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, uh, Vermont is where I think my soul lives. That, that was my formative years. That's where I got into theater. What part of Vermont? Uh, Marlboro. Uh-huh. Well, no, I went to Marlboro College. We moved to Londonderry, uh, about an hour away from Marlboro. But then I went to uh, Marlboro College. And, and so where did you, uh, where did you start to... Uh, Start acting and, and learning the craft. I was um, waiting for my ra. I went to uh, high school in Townsend, Vermont, and uh, my we lived about thirty miles away. And my ride, Sheila Amston, was auditioning for a play, and it was snowing really hard. And I was standing outside the building, and the t- teacher told me to come in. And so I was inside as people were auditioning. And then he said, "Okay, Wendy." And I said, "Oh, I'm just waiting for Sheila." And he said, well, you're here, read. And I was so scared that I, uh, I, I, I started crying and I didn't even look at the cast list because I thought you know, it was just such a humiliating experience. And, uh, I was cast <laughs> and then I did that play and I kind of liked it. And then I, I did a bunch of others and then, uh, a wonderful teacher I had in high school, John Stearns. Uh, he, I wasn't going to go to college, and he called Marlboro and said, uh, "I think you should see this girl. She would never fit into a regular college, but um, she's very talented." 
And then he tricked me. He told me the only way to get into Marlboro was to have a two-hour interview with the entire faculty and board of directors. But since I hadn't taken SATs or anything else, I would go over and I would talk to uh, this man, Tim Little, to see if they would make an exception for me to have that interview. And so I went over armed with my Maltlerids rig under my <laughs> under my arm and uh, had this lovely conversation with Tim Little and at the end of it he said do you have any questions and I said well I was getting interested and I said well if I decide to apply um, when would I have to have my formal interview and he just looked at me like I was an idiot and <laughs> said you just had it and they gave me a huge scholarship and uh, so I went to Marlboro and there I studied with uh, just a, who's still my mentor, Jeffrey Brown, and um, just started doing plays at Marlboro. You just would do, in those days, play after play after play. We didn't necessarily take classes. Marlboro has a seven-to-one teaching faculty. You would go to your professor's house for dinner and leave at two in the morning wow. kind of thing. It was amazing. It's the only, only liberal arts college that's ever gotten a MacArthur Genius Award, and I think it's closing. So we are all hard broken. But it's tiny. When I went there, there were 117 students. It's just magical. And uh, there's a movement afoot. We're trying to figure out a way to save it or, but you know, it's money, money, money. Right. Um, So uh, fast forward to Fort Collins. (laughs) Uh, How did you wind up here? Well, uh, I married uh, Doug Ishii in New York, and he's a neuroscientist, and he was recruited by uh, CSU. They wanted to really uh, beef up their neuroscience program, and he's a brilliant, brilliant scientist. And so they came after him, and... um, and uh, we moved out here. We're sadly no longer together, but we both came out here to have a quieter life. And he started a uh, neuroscience company and I started Bableu. <laughs> and we were both working 80-hour weeks, as one does. Right. And uh, But so, yeah, I came out here and had thought I would retire from acting. I was going to get a dog and a horse and learn to cook and and have a quieter life and memorize all of Shakespeare in a hammock. Didn't work out that way, huh? So um, what was the idea? And you started uh, Bablu with a, a woman named Eva Wright? Eva Wright, yeah, it's E, but it's pronounced A. She's Swedish. Okay, and so how did, how did, uh, how did that come together? Two margaritas at the Rio Grande. Okay. I think a lot of things have been conceived over okay. two margaritas at the Rio Grande. <laughs> <laughs> we, she had seen me in a play at Open Stage, Dangerous Liaisons, and I was at a gathering with her, and she said there was a play she would like to direct me in called Duet for One. I didn't know it, but uh, it's about a woman who has MS and a wheelchair talking to her psychiatrist for six sessions. And I thought, well, I don't know if Fort Collins would be interested in that. And then we had lunch, and I found out that it was based on Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, who I'd gone skinny dipping with in Marlboro because she'd come up to see Casals and all the musicians from the Marlboro Music Festival and the Marlboro Theater Company, which was another company I had helped to found. We would all go swimming after their concerts or rehearsals and our rehearsals or plays. 
And one night, Jacqueline Dupre was there with, you know, just this blonde hair going down past her bum, and she was amazing. And people said, oh, that's Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist. So we didn't break bread together, but I knew her and her, I knew her music. And when I found out that this play duet for one was based uh, on her as she journeyed through MS, and it has a killer monologue, um, I suddenly went, oh, okay, now I'm interested. I still didn't know if people would come to see it. Uh, we did, we opened with three performances at the Lincoln Center, and people did come, and we got such amazing response on it, and we did a lot of talkbacks with members of the MS Society and psychiatrists and people dealing with depression and music, because uh, in the play it's based on a They've changed it to a violinist. And it's a very powerful piece. And we just, I mean, we had no idea. We had to add performances and uh, just got amazing response. So we we always knew that with Bablo we wanted to be small so we could take risks. And we we were looking, we decided we wanted our own space. So we spent uh, several months looking for a location and we finally found one over also on Pine Street but on the other side of the railroad tracks and we renovated a a little uh, storefront and put in 49 seats and we opened with a double bill of Beckett plays there were bets on the street that we wouldn't last six months right 28 years ago (laughs) and why Beckett and you did you went on to do quite a quite a fair amount of Beckett shows so uh, how did that happen it happened because we were supposed to open with Ava directing me and had a gobbler and then some life events happened uh, with her and we we had to uh, postpone that idea and I remembered that Laura Jones, who was a new colleague at CSU, had seen the space and said she'd been a Beckett scholar. She'd done her uh, doctoral thesis on Alan Schneider's work with Beckett. And she had said when she saw the space, so this reminds me of the Beckett Theater in New York. And I actually was not a fan of Beckett at all. I had been asked to do Happy Days at Marlboro as part of my senior plan of concentration. And I read it, and I said, I'm not playing some 50-year-old woman in a mound of dirt. And I said, I won't do it. I hate it. (laughs) And and about 10 years later in New York, Peter Miner, who's a pretty notable New York director, we were walking down 57th Street one night after his class, which I got to take for, for free, which was nice. It was a soap opera class, and he wanted to ring her in there, so I got to take it and not have to pay. And one night, we were walking down 57th Street, and Peter said, you know, Wendy, a play I'd love to direct you in. And I said, what, Peter? Thinking he would say, you know, Uncle Vanya or Misanthrope or Streetcar, one of my roles. <laughs> And he said, happy days. I said, is that that thing with the woman in the dirt? I hate that play. (laughs) Then we move out here, you know, 10 or 15 years later, I can't remember. And when we couldn't open with Hedda Gobbler, 
I knew we had to open before we closed. And we had raised, you know, some money to do some renovations. And I remembered Laura saying it reminded her of the Beckett Theater. And she had also once asked me if Morris Burns ever acted. And I said, he says he can't remember lines. And she said, he has the perfect face and voice for crap and crap's last tape. And 18 minutes of it is on tape. So I remember that conversation. And after I stopped crying, I called Laura and said, would it be good for your tenure if I can badger Morris into doing Crap's last tape for you to direct the inaugural and only play at Babla Theater before we close. And she said, yes, but that's only one act. Why don't you do Happy Days? And I went, oh, my God, three directors in three very different chapters of my life have said, why don't I do this play? It just followed you. So I said, okay, because I knew we had to open. I still didn't think, I still thought we would be closing right after we opened. And uh, I mean, I still hated the play, but I trusted Laura. And then in the doing of it, I've fallen so in love with, with that play, with Winnie, with... I think Beckett, Beckett, for me, was an acquired and then an addictive taste. And it was amazing. We opened. We had to extend the run. People came. I didn't realize there were so many Becketeers here. It sort of set us up and running. <laughs> right. And then you went on to do a number of Beckett plays and also travel internationally with them. Yeah. Sam has taken me all over the globe. Sam. Um, yeah, I call him Sam. You know, now we're best buddies. Um, yeah, Linda Bensby, uh, when she saw Our Happy Days, she invited us to an international Beckett festival in Victoria, Canada. And so we did Happy Days there and got, again, phenomenal uh, response from Stan Gantarski, the keynote speaker for the festival. He's a big Becketeer and a lot of a lot of other Becketeers from all over the world. And Eric Prince was there and he came up and asked me if I had a photo. And I said, I don't, but maybe my director does. Why? And he said, well, he'd been asked to write a review for the Beckett uh, Journal. And he thought our production of Happy Days was the best thing at the festival. This was an international festival with really big name companies. We were the lowest on the totem pole. (laughs) And so he wrote a lovely review in the Beckett Journal. He also asked me if I would do the American premiere of a play he had written called Seance, which was loosely based on Happy Days. It's a woman at a kitchen table, not in a mound. But um, he sent it, and I read it, and I thought, I have no idea how to do this play. So Laura and I wrote him a letter and said, fascinating play, couldn't possibly do it unless you come and direct it. Thinking, well, that's the end of that, you know. And I said, and we have no money. And his university paid for him to come. So he, we did seance. That turned out to be very successful. And then Eric eventually moved here and took a position at CSU. And so through Linda Bensby and through Eric and through Laura and other Beckett scholars who have seen our work, we've now gone to, let's see, Great Britain, Israel, South Africa, 
Australia, Northern Ireland most recently. But yeah, just, you know, and we're written up now in all these books and, and journals and Jim Nolson, Beckett's only authorized biographer, is a huge fan and has become a very, very good friend and endorsed us to major, you know, we've gotten worldwide press because of our our Beckett work, which just amazes me when I was the one saying, I don't like Beckett, I'm not doing Beckett. (laughs) Now I'll probably die in the mound. So um, in thinking about those Beckett plays, which, you know, um, anybody who's like worried about that, that old thing about like, we got to put butts in seats, you know, would say, don't do Beckett, do Neil Simon or something like that, you know. But you weren't worried about that. You had a small theater and you wanted to do what you wanted to do. But um, how, what, is, what is your take now? Uh, it was 28 years later and you've got a much bigger theater and, you know, you've got to keep people coming through. How do you balance that, that, that desire to do, you know, things that you think are artistically meaningful and also having people, enough people to keep the lights on. It is, I think every artistic director (laughs) in the country goes through this balancing act and it is a balancing act. You, you want to do plays that you respect and that will challenge you as artists. And sometimes those aren't the mainstream, you know, plays. Uh, But I think it is important to, to do, to, to have that balance where you do some things that you know, oh, this will this will bring in the box office, so that will allow us to do the year of magical thinking. You know, you get the awards and the heartfelt letters from people usually on the plays that are a, a, a bit more challenging or might bring in a, a smaller audience, but you sell a lot of tickets with the, you know, Tuna Christmases or whatever. But it is, uh, um, it, it's one of the reasons why we are small, so that we can take risks that, I mean, I'm not interested in just being a um community theater that does warmed over Broadway musicals or something. I mean, I think those are great and people, you know, but there are enough of them elsewhere. And so, I mean, I've got other things to do with my life. If I can't be terrified all the time that I'm going to fail, I live by Sam Beckett's words, next time fail better. And the other one of, I must go on, I can't go on, I'll go on. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't like skiing. I don't like jumping out of planes. I don't like driving fast. I don't like other risks in my life, but I like to take risks on stage. And I, and I think that's kind of the, um, maybe because I went to Marlboro College and, and that was small and risk-taking and, and not kind of a usual model for a, a university or college. But um, it, I think w- one of the things that I hope and want Bob Lue to be is a place where people can come and take those risks and challenge themselves and not be afraid to fail. I mean, sometimes we do shows that my cringe level is through the ceiling. I think that's true of every theater. And then other times you go, oh my God, we did this. This is amazing, you know? Right. And I don't want it ever to be totally predictable. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. That keeps it, keeps it vibrant for you, I'm sure. Um, so, uh, thinking a, a little bit more on the practical side of things. So you're in this building now, which is, it's a good size building, but the theater itself is about a hundred seats. Is that 99? <laughs> um, so what's the story? How did, when did you move in here and how did that come, come to pass? Well, we were, we were actually, we were in the little theater, the 49 seat theater for, uh, almost 10 years and we kind of outgrew it and we, didn't own that and the rent was going up and up and up and you can't well (laughs) um when when we decided to open the little theater with craps last tape and happy days uh my husband came home for lunch and i said well we finally figured out what we're going to open with before we close and he said what and i said craps last tape and happy days by samuel beckett and he said and i quote honey how stupid are you First, you name it Bable so nobody can say it or knows what it means. Then you put it on Pine Street so nobody can find it. You have 49 seats, so you have no hope of breaking even. And you're opening with Samuel Beckett, that if people do know who he is, they hate him. And I said, we'll see if they want us here. Well, they wanted us here. And as I said, you know, we've gone all over the world with Beckett. We Our international reputation is bigger than our local reputation, although we have a pretty good regional and we have a pretty good reputation. So I'm grateful for that. But we eventually outgrew the little theater. And I personally don't like big theaters. I... I'm uncomfortable in a theater that's over 200 seats, uh, and even that is way too big. And so we were looking for another space, and uh, through ridiculous circumstances, we happened upon this, you know, this uh, amazing historical building. And I still thought it was way, way too big. Uh, I was with some of my board members and Eric Prince and Bob Braddy. And Bob Braddy said, this is perfect for a theater because it has a 58-foot uninterrupted span with these amazing trusses. And there's no poles in the middle holding it up. And uh, um, it... It had space for a, you know, a a shop and a lobby and all all of this. It had been, it was built for waterhead gates. It was built in 1910. Waterhead gates? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) When the battleship Maine sunk, there was an embargo on Cuban sugar. And so all these German sugar beet growers, for some reason, moved to Fort Collins to grow sugar beets, but there wasn't any way to irrigate the crop. So Mr. Giddings built this building so it could house these 15-foot tall waterhead gates. And that's why it has this amazing span. And then it became, uh, years later, when that business was no longer, um, it made soil boring augers and that's what we're in here when we when we took it over soil boring augers and waterhead gates i I say we went from augers to actors in 102 days and opened with both parts of angels in america how crazy is that um but what we did was we saw the space uh i will never forget this we were at a we had a board retreat and John Prouty and I had been sort of planning this for, I don't know, 13 months. And we finally told the board what we were up to. We were at a retreat and we said we were going to 
go across the railroad tracks by the Giddings Building, launch a $3 million capital campaign, and everybody at the table, their arms were like crossed in front of them, and their heads were down, and they were looking up under their eyebrows. They thought I had lost my mind, and we did it anyway. We did a very... Uh, not a traditional capital campaign. It was really a lot of grassroots. And Tom Sutherland very, very generously had gotten what he called his his uh, money from the Shah, uh, frozen assets from the Shah of Iran after captivity when he, he and the other hostages were in Beirut for six and a half years. He gave us a uh, $500,000 seed pledge, and then we raised a million dollars. So we now own this building. Now i got to raise another million and do the exterior and finish off the interior. But it was amazing, the... Um, the community and people even from outside our state just galvanized and behind the idea of a, a small theater that did plays, as we like to say, um, Laura Jones always says this, uh, she got it from, from Alan Schneider, um, to do plays that give you a little more to think about on the way to the parking lot than where you park the car. Okay. And so that's mostly what we try to do. And and what year was this? That was uh, 2004. So um, just thinking a little bit more about the, the building itself, this area is it's kind of an industrial looking area, but it's certainly changed since you opened here. There's more kind of cool restaurants. I think there's a brewery and a distillery. And and uh, and, and I think the theater has helped uh, with that, wouldn't you say? We were the pioneers. There was nothing here except Wayne Trader's gas station over there and interstate batteries. And Azatlan was built uh, shortly after we we came over. And um, there was United Way in the building down there, which is now something else. But yeah, everything else is, is new to the area. So we were very definitely the pioneers. And as I said, people thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> but... That could be your your motto is Wendy Ishii, proving them wrong since 1992 and, and beyond. Onstage Colorado is the state's best place to find information about live theater. Our website at onstagecolorado.com has the most comprehensive calendar for live performances, not just in the metro area, but all around Colorado. That means you can find shows from Boulder to Breckenridge, Denver to Durango, and everywhere in between. Also, the Onstage Colorado review crew gets out to see many of the shows going on around the state. So if you'd like to know more about a show before you buy tickets, chances are we've got a review of it online you can read first. To keep on top of it all, subscribe to our weekly newsletter on the site. It comes out every Thursday and has the latest reviews, podcasts, and also a lineup of new shows opening around Colorado. Find it all on onstagecolorado.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Onstage Colorado podcast wherever you listen to your podcast you can find it on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify and many other podcast platforms so um so uh, the theater now uh Bablu does a wide range of theater and events so you've uh, you know gone beyond just the the early that you know the beckett focus you've got five main stage shows you have the readers theater i want to ask you about that and you occasionally do kid shows and you've got a gallery with original artwork and all this stuff going on is that just keeping it keeping it busy is probably a big a big part of that, right? Right. Well, I remember when I told John Moore um, 
that we were starting a capital campaign to buy this building. He thought I was nuts, too. But I remember he did say, you know, when you own your own building, you work 24-7. And so we do. Um, we Even in the Little Theater, we had an art gallery. That was always important to me and that we have this concept of a salon theater. So we didn't want it to be just theater. We always had other events, too. We had Sunday Chautauquas and magic shows and history, living history plays and, and uh, kids activities and things. And so we, we carried that over here as well uh, because I really um, did want it to encompass not just theater but poetry and prose and we now have puppetry as well and uh Reader's Theater. We do a full season of Reader's Theater. I think we might be the only theater that does a full season of that. And we do that um, after we open our main stage. Then the two weeks after that, we we do Reader's Theater and we do two performances of that. And that's been very successful. I And are those just readings, I assume? They're readings. There's sometimes, depending on the director, some of our directors like to do a bit more staging. Some uh, just do, you know, I, I leave it up to the, to the directors mostly. My preference is really... Uh, just hearing the words and letting the audience's imagination uh, take hold. I grew up on radio, and I still i am addicted to radio. So I really like hearing the spoken word, and I think it's really wonderful for actors to not have to, uh, to have to do it without scenery or props or uh, blocking or any of that, but just really delve into the words and it's really just your facial expression and and your voice i think that's a wonderful thing for actors to do so yeah we do that and we have a and then sometimes like with the best with best brothers which is our next main stage show that started as readers theater but the response to it was so uh, um, wonderful that um, we moved at main stage and we've done that a couple times and I think we're doing it next season too so it's a nice way to kind of test uh, how something's going to work and then go you know this deserves a full production. So you were talking about the, the notion of a salon theater and the name Bob Blue comes from that tradition can you just describe a little bit how, how what, what that was and how, how you chose this wacky name for the place <laughs> Our first name was the Women's Eastern Theater Storefront One Act Theater Company or something like that. <laughs> we were, the kinds of shows that we were talking about doing that we knew people basically wouldn't want to come to. Beckett wasn't even in the mix at that point. Um, and then finally, as we kind of were whispering this to people around town, we realized there was an interest in it. And... Um, so one day Ava was over at my house. I was mopping the kitchen floor and she was in the living room reading from a, some kind of a dictionary. And I said, you know, we better find a less ungainly name because it looks like we're going to do this at least for a little while. And 
so she was calling out these names and I was mopping away and then she said Bubble and it made me laugh and I said what does that mean and she said blue stocking and I went oh my god that's it because I knew what the blue stockings were and and because there's so much bastardized French in this town you know when I left New York I told my agent I was going to be living on the Cache le Poudre River and I came out here and it's the Poudre you know (laughs) so that just has always cracked me up and so I thought it was funny we only expected to last two years might have named it something different I don't know but maybe not Um, I mean Mabu Mines is one of my favorite theater companies in the world and who knows what that means you know but it's fun to say Mabu Mines you know Bubble (laughs) (laughs) so that's how kind of how we got our name and and we knew we wanted it to have this salon theater concept and um so we did. <laughs> so uh, along with, uh, you know, running and guiding the theater, you're still a pretty active uh, actress as well. I, I saw you recently in the Waverly Gallery, and I'm not sure what you've done since then. Do you have any, anything in any of the shows coming up that you're going to be in? Yeah, I'm going to do Well, I just did um, Driving Miss Daisy. All right. And... Um, and then I had to step in and narrate for Crimes of the Heart because we lost somebody. Um, and I'm going to uh, rework um, the Year of Magical Thinking as Reader's Theater. I really just put it in as a placeholder for a grant that was due and thinking, well, we'll change it later. But then a lot of people said, oh, I'm so glad you're bringing that back. Um because it was, it's very relevant to a lot of people who, and we all know somebody who's dying or has died or going through the process. And um, so I'll be doing that. And then after that, I hope I get a little break. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you just as a, as an actor, um, after you've been doing it for a while, um, do, do you ever like do you feel differently? Like uh, you say, you like to scare yourself. So maybe, maybe it isn't different. Do you feel like you have less nervousness as you go out on opening night or is it just the same? No, I, I have as much nervousness as I, as I ever did. I just finished doing Rockabye, Beckett's Rockabye at the university. Uh, Cause we did a small Beckett festival there and it was terrifying, right. but also Absolutely wonderful. We only did four performances, and I thought, I could do this for six months. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about your 28th season. We were talking about the first season, and 28th, my goodness, it's been, uh, you know, that's a great run. Uh, So you kicked off uh, in before the Christmas season with Last Train to Nebrock. Right, we opened the season with Driving Miss Daisy, and uh, that... uh, we, we got a, a lovely, lovely response on that. And then we did Last Train to... It's actually Nibrock. I thought it was Nibrock too, but it's Nibrock. And it's Corbin spelt backwards. Okay, so and then coming up, uh, you mentioned Best Brothers. What's uh, what's that one? Oh, that is a delightful play with also some real poignancy to it. It's two brothers, and their mom has just died. She... Uh, she died. I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. She died during a gay pride day parade that she went to. One of her sons is gay and he got her to go to this parade and then she, she died. 
and she was crushed in a, by, a, oh by one of the floats. And she has this dog named Enzo. And so the two brothers have to plan her funeral and who's going to care for the dog and the eulogy and the thank you letters. And it is so heartwarming. It's written by a... Um, Canadian playwright who's not done very much here, but he's very uh, he's very popular in Canada. Daniel, I can never know if I'm saying this right, McElvore, I think, and Lynn Bogner, who's directing it. She knew of his work, and this is a play that we did as Readers Theater last year. And as I said, the response was just over the top, over the moon, and went, okay, we're going to do this main stage. Plus, it's only two characters, so it saves on budget. Um, and I, we think it's the uh, the Colorado premiere also of his play, and yeah, it, it tackles death on a whole lot of level levels, but there's so much humor in it, and just the practicality of what do you do when your mom dies? How do you take care of all those details and not have the whole family unravel? Wow, that, well, that sounds very interesting. So, uh, and then next up uh, after that, in the, I guess in the spring, is Way to Heaven. Way to Heaven, yeah. It's a play that is takes place in one of the, it's a fictionalized death camp, probably modeled on Theresienstadt when the when the Red Cross went in to, you know, because all the rumors of the uh, concentration camps were starting to come out and they went in to go see if they were true or not. And not just Theresienstadt, but other other camps were kind of made to look like, oh, we're just a, we're just a happy village. And the uh, prisoners there were made to, you know, perform as if they were, you know, going on. And so this play, it's not, necessarily about the horrors of the Holocaust, although obviously, you know, that's that's there, but it's about this the commandant of the camp and the Red Cross uh, head of the Red Cross who comes in to look at it and it's it's uh, it's really complex. Um, Bob Brady is directing it and yeah, the facts of it are, are yeah, the Red Cross inspec- inspection. And this camp is located in the former Czechoslovakia. And it's a fictional camp, probably 30 miles north of Berlin. And the, the commandant of the camp is a, a well-educated, very literate colonel in the SS. And he's responsible for the preparations of the visit. And in the techniques as he understands them of theater, I guess. Um, but he's a man of a very little artistic imagination and which will ultimately wear very heavily on his patience. And the um, Gershom Gottfried is a Jewish inmate. He's the nominal mayor of the camp's uh, inmate population, and he's been selected by the commandant to teach and direct the Im- inmates how to how to show performances. And he's a humble man uh, with no great education, but uh, enormous wisdom and compassion. And then there's the Red Cross inspector. And he's a middle-aged man who's doing his job. He's not particularly vigilant nor inquiring about his inspection. And he's only he's seen only at the end of the war when he explains his part in the inspection 
he has a very long apology at the end where he demonstrates anger and guilt and excuses and finally sorrow. So it's, and the play jumps around in time. There are children in it. Um, It's a fascinating, fascinating study. And so, I mean, with all the anti-Semitic stuff going on right now and all the hatred in the world, I mean, it could be, it could be in Baghdad today. It could be, you know, on the border. It could be anywhere. It's why do we as human beings keep doing this again and again and again and again? And so it's, uh, I think it's a, a timely play. It's also just a beautiful play, very challenging for the actors. And uh, Bob Brady is directing it, and he knows a lot about that historical period and we're doing a whole lot of community outreach around it um we're going to do a a, a mini film festival of susan polish schutz's films um she's our governor's mom and she's a filmmaker uh and she her company is called iron zeal and she does documentaries that make a difference is their slogan and we've shown several of them and so we're going to I think it's on April 11th, have a one-day mini-festival of her films, um, all of which uh, will be a good complement to the play. And um, and Juliet Whitman, who's the you know reviewer for Westward and also a fine author, she's we're doing two of her short stories that are post-World War II family members of hers who went through the war and they're fascinating stories. So we're doing a lot of complimentary special events around Way to Heaven to really have our community come together and talk about our world and how can we make it better all right well that sounds really interesting and then and then you lighten things up closing out the season with Blythe spirit (laughs) no coward uh always a fun one to to see yeah and that's just such a classic i don't think well we have never done um no coward in this theater. I've, for years, I've, Eric Prince has been badgering, badgering, badgering me to do um, Blythe Spirit. And I just said, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that we have the sensibility here to do it, but he, he's directed it before. He knows it very well. He, he loves the play. Uh, Luann Wright is going to play Madame Arcati and that's a, been on her bucket list. And she's, I think, brilliant brilliant actress but I think it will be just a joyful way to end our season with uh, this just wonderfully funny play and you know it's it's just been a smash comedy hit on London and Broadway and they're actually Judy Dench is coming out with a uh, there's a film of it coming out this year yeah I can't I don't know who else is in it but Judy Dench is is uh Madame Arcati, and so that will be a wonderful, I think just a wonderful way to end end our season with this just clever and also very insightful, you know, <laughs> comedy. 
So, well, um, I wanted to, to end up just by asking a little bit about like, so now that you're, you're kind of heading into the 30th uh, year uh, with Bob Blue, what, what would you like to see um, looking back, say like 10 years from now, what would you hope that you will have accomplished in the next few, next decade? I would really like, I mean, I know theaters are especially small theaters, uh, are always on a shoestring. And, you know, thank God for grants and patrons and all of that kind of support. I would love to be able to give our artists a, a stipend that meant something more than just uh, here's a little something for gas money and, and you know, coffee because uh, it it's a sacrifice for artists in our society to to do their art and and I would like for um you know I would love if if we could go to uh five or six shows a week I'd love to do a 5:30 matinee for people who don't want to drive after dark I'd love to do as we do 6:30 Thursdays and then Friday and Saturday and then Sunday matinees and really because I think one of the ways that actors grow is by doing it a lot right. every week. And, you know, I would love to go to three month runs. Um, that'll probably never happen, but right. who knows? Right. Who knows? And then you also spoke about raising a bunch of money to, to, to do the, the exterior of the theater and clean up the inside and phase just kind of do some more phase yeah, two. Phase two. Yeah. Phase two, because even though we were the pioneers, now the neighborhood is getting all gussied up around us and we're like, no, we have to keep up with it. (laughs) So we have uh, plans uh, that actually, when we did phase one, there were phase two plans that are kind of in the works and uh, finish the interior, do the exterior and upstairs and maybe add even in the Butler building a uh, 50-seat theater that's flexible that we can move seating around and would love to add some more classes and you know have this really be a well kind of like the Marlboro Music Festival where you never knew what you were going to hear there but you knew it was going to be good or interesting or fascinating or challenging or something and that's kind of what I want people to go well I don't know what's playing at Bablo but I know it'll be worth our time you know, it'll, it'll, so that, so that it becomes really, or stays and becomes even more of a kind of vibrant center for the arts and music and poetry and prose and all that. Okay. Well, I have one final question for you. It's a little bit of a curveball, but see what you can do with it. So, um, can you recommend three plays that people should read? Maybe ones they're not likely to see produced, but, uh, but that they should, they should read, get familiar with. Let's see. Um, well, I think Waiting for Gatto. Absolutely. Or Happy Days. Uncle Vanya. I mean, that is produced a lot, I think. I hope. But I think any checkoff is really uh, very important that people read and get to know. I was just thinking because a lot of people don't read plays, you know, and they really are fun to read. And, you know, they're, they're fairly quick to read compared to like a novel. And, and you really can expose yourself to a lot more theater doing that. Right, right. Wendy Ishii, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And also thanks for some of the nice comments you've uh, made recently about uh, On Stage Colorado. It's nice to get the recognition from someone like you. I am so grateful to you guys. I didn't, I did not know I didn't know about you. I'm I'm terrible about 
looking things up, and it's just wonderful to know that you're there. Well, thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Alex. Good to see you again. You too. It was great hearing from Wendy about that amazing theater. It's really a gem for Fort Collins. Uh, we'll have a review of Bob Blue's production of The Best Brothers around the end of January, so keep an eye out for that. Wendy and I figured it had been uh, more than 20 years since we'd seen each other, so it was a real treat to catch up with her. Thanks for listening to the Onstage Colorado podcast. If you're looking for shows, showtimes, reviews, and more, be sure to look on the Onstage Colorado website. We've got it all, baby, so hope your new year is off to a great start, and we'll see you at the theater. 